are listening to the podcast ministry of Portadown Independent Methodist Church. We welcome you and thank you for joining us. We trust that you are blessed by the ministry of God's Word today. Second Samuel chapter 7 and beginning to read at verse number 8. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will build, will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. It is uh, an experience that we have all had where we are in a conversation with someone and there is a great sharing in the, in the sentiment of what is being said. Uh, they are maybe speaking of things that are very good and their heart has joy and our heart has joy and there's kind of a, a, a flow in the conversation that, that you really, really enjoy and you are with each other and you are together and, and there is agreement and what is being said is this constant and this steady stream of things that, that stir more joy in your heart and stir more delight and more appreciation the more that the conversation goes on. And then it is possible for them to say something that throws your mind for a moment. And you've said, I've been with you right along to where you are going, and I've been in agreement with you, and I share in everything you've said, but that thing there has thrown me for a moment. That doesn't necessarily seem to fit with what has been said, and so you're scrambling and trying to catch up, and then you catch up and you say, ah, I see now, it took me a moment to catch up with you, but I have finally got there. 
And that's the way I feel about where we are in this passage that we're studying this morning. In this passage, David has had this idea, God, I would like to build you a house. And God says through the prophet uh, Nathan, no, thank you to your idea to build me a house. And speaking of houses, I'm going to build a house for you, not a physical house, but a dynasty that your flesh and blood, one of them will end up sitting on a throne and he will rule eternally and he will live eternally. And this is, this is indescribably good news for David. He must go to bed that night and think, one of my descendants is going to sit on the throne for eternity and and it is indescribably good news. God has said to David, I'm going to make you a great name. My people are going to have a great place. And, and, and it's just one blessing after another blessing that, 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 as David heard it, his heart must have been filling and filling and filling until it was overflowing. Now, when we get then to verse 12, he begins to say to David, when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep, I will set up thy seed after thee. Now, the immediate reference here is to Solomon. And then in verse 13, he, David, will build that house for my name that you were speaking of, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's more blessing and it's more good news. Verse 14, then, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So it has been one blessing after another blessing, and we're nodding our heads, that, that's amazing, that, that's even more amazing. And then we get to this moment where God says, I will chasten him with the rod of men. God has promised great blessing, and even in the beginning of this, the, the blessing is still staggering. Verse 14, I will be his Father, and he shall be my son. We can't miss the highness of this language, the loftiness of this language. It's an honor to be a servant of God, but this language of being a son of God is, 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 is utterly amazing. This language has already been used of Israel, Exodus 4.22. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. And now it is being used of Israel's king. And this family language, God saying, I will be a father to Solomon. Solomon will be my son. It inevitably speaks of God's love towards this child. That, that, that is bound up, that, that you can't take that out of this, this language. God is saying, I will love that child. I will, I will have a tender love toward him. He is my child. And as a result of this language, Solomon, by God's grace, can enjoy fellowship and communion with God. He will get to build the temple, the house of God, where he can go in and have fellowship and communion with God. David, even after this, goes into the, the, the tent where the presence of God was and enjoys this, this fellowship, this communion, this blessing, this, this understanding, God is my Father, God loves me, God cares for me, God will provide for me. It is high and lofty language. 
And then God says, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him. Now, at first glance, this can seem to be a kind of a break in the line of blessing. Great name, great place, great people, a great person is going to be your descendant. We get that even at face value. That is incredible. But now this language of chastening can kind of throw us for a moment and take us a little moment to catch up and say, how can that be a blessing? Well, that is a blessing indeed. But if on hearing this, the likes of Solomon thought, I can describe God as my father, and I, if he thought I can enjoy blessings of fellowship with my father while I walk in disobedience, he would be in for a rude awakening. If he, if he thought that he could know all of the blessedness of the Father's smile and communion and fellowship, even while he walked in disobedience to the Father, he was in for a rude awakening. And this verse here regarding the chastening, it's not like a footnote in this covenant that God enters into with David. No, the God who pledges and and says, essentially, I will die before I fail to keep my promises of blessing to the house of David. This promise of chastening is every bit something that God is committed to. This is the the promise of the covenant-keeping God. There is great blessing to David's line, but there will also be chastening where there is iniquity. God commits himself in this covenant to chasten his erring sons. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word chasten in the Bible can have a wider meaning than we might, might think when we first hear it. And it can include general teaching and general training that that a parent would give to a child. In the New Testament, the word for chasten is kind of built on top of the word for child. And it encompasses so much of teaching and training. It says, for example, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, Acts 7.22. It, it is the word chasten. Moses was chastened in all the wisdom of Egypt. He was taught. He was trained. He was brought up to know all of that wisdom. It's all bound up in this word chasten. Even in the New Testament, Paul said that he was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, Acts 22, and it's the word chastened. I was chastened at the feet of Gamaliel. What do you mean? Well, I was taught. I was trained. It was, there was a lot that was going on. So in the Bible, the word chasten includes discipline. It includes rebuke. It includes correction all the way up to severe discipline. And here in this passage, it refers to the rod. So there is this, this wideness, if you like, or this broadness to the methods that can be used in chastening when it's used in the Bible. It can be words, it can be stronger words, it can be actions, but it's all bound up in this word that we have, chasten. 
And the severe acts of chastening that we often do associate with the word were reserved for serious moments. Proverbs 13, 24, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. So, so the severe end isn't, isn't something that is, that is happening every minute of every day, but where there is a severe iniquity or a severe departure from the truth, here we have there is a chastening that takes place uh, betimes. And so we could say then that there is a, a broadness to this word and the methods that, that are used in chastening are kind of dependent on what it is that is being chastened. It can be simple correction, it can be rebuke, or it can be indeed the use of the rod. Now we could say that if there is a broadness to the meaning of this word, there is a narrowness to its objective. There is a purpose in the chastening that takes place in the Bible. Even in our English word for chasten, it it comes from the word chaste, which means pure. And to chasten somebody is is this endeavor to to purify, if you like, their, their thinking or to purify their behavior or to purify even their character. There is always an objective with chastening. It is not just a a severe discipline that is brought with no end in mind, but it is brought for the correction. It is brought for for the benefit and for the profit of the one who is being chastened. And so we find in this word then a broadness to its, to its kind of uh, meaning and uh, a broadness to the methods that can be used in the chastening, but there is a narrowness. This is for the good of the one who is being chastened. This is for their benefit. This is for them to learn. This is for them to unlearn some of what they are doing. This is for them to know the consequences of what they're doing. It's for their benefit and it's for their good. Now, when we think of the word chastening, and especially at the higher end of chastening, the the rod of chastening, it, it goes without saying that this is not pleasant, and the Bible fully acknowledges this. Hebrews 12, 11, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. It's not nice to be chastened. It's not nice even to be rebuked sometimes in a very gentle way. It's definitely not nice to be chastened then in a severe way. We could ask here this morning for a show of hands even amongst children. Who enjoys when your parents chasten you? Who enjoys whenever parents correct you, whenever they rebuke you, or whenever the chastening is very severe? And the Bible acknowledges no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. But the grievous nature of the chastening is necessary to communicate to the heart the grievous nature of what has been done. And, and that's where we see this, this commitment in God's heart to put his children at times, be times, through things that are deeply unpleasant, that they emerge out the other end, having discovered the grievous nature of what they had done. 
to be purified of that, to learn and to see the wrongness of that. Now, sometimes our words are enough to convey to the heart the wrongness. Some people have a very sensitive heart and words might be enough, like, like the, the slightest the slightest hint of a, an appearance of rebuke on a parent's face and, and inside their heart is learning the grievousness of what had been done. But sometimes words aren't enough. Our, our, our hearts can be dull and Proverbs twenty two fifteen says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And so when we come to chastening in the Bible, there is a broadness to its meaning. God corrects his children, God rebukes his children, and indeed God brings his children under the rod of chastening for the purpose that they might be profited and benefited, that they might emerge the other end in some way purified and and made better by that chastening rod that he has administered. It is not random, it is is not just to satisfy something in God that he enjoys the grievousness. No, there's always a purpose and a profit to be had in this chastening. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn that we don't sing, but it includes this line, these lines. But if thy saints deserve rebuke, thou hast a gentler rod. Thy providences and thy book shall make them know their God. Blessed is the man thy hands chastise, and to his duty draw. Thy scourges make thy children wise when they forget thy law. And so if you're here this morning and you are a a child of God, then, then there is something vital and valuable to understand here about the chastening of God. Sometimes it can be words. Sometimes it can be circumstances, but whatever the method and the broadness of how God brings his chastening, there is a narrowness to its purpose. It is for our profit and for our good. Now, when we move then from the chastening of this, which is what God promises in this covenant to do, we then have to look for a moment at the chastener. God says, I will chasten him. And the vital thing here is that we have to study the heart of the chastener. If you do not study the heart of the chastener in this passage, then you might find objections to either God's chastening or to his means of chastening. You might misunderstand God's to you might object in general or, or, or misunderstand or misconstrue what God is up to. And so we have to study the heart of the chastener. God in this passage is the very God that is opening his hands so wide and his heart so wide. And he's saying to David, I am going to knock you down, if you like, with a tidal wave of indescribable blessings. That's the heart of the chastener. It is a heart that is good, and therefore we imply that the chastening is good as well. The the hand that holds the rod in our chastening is controlled by a heart that is good. 
a heart that is love and a heart that blesses in indescribable ways, including the blessing of chastening. Now, I have a recollection, a very distinct one for obvious reasons from when I was a child, and it was far from joyous. It has stuck in my mind for obvious reasons ever since. Now, I have to say, I feel a deep appreciation for it. Then, not so much, but the rod in my dad's hand was a wooden spoon. And the reason the rod was in his hand was that I had told a barefaced, a barefaced lie, a stupid lie. Like, look, it wasn't even a good, it was, it was, there was not, it was just, it was from beginning to end, it was barefaced and it was bad and it was wrong. And in the process of the chastening, the wooden spoon actually broke in two. I was crying hard, not obviously because it had broke, but perhaps it was clearly not in good shape before it started. But but when I think back to that, and when we think of that, and when you hear that, especially if you didn't know my dad, that could be open to all kinds of misinterpretation. I mean, that sounds crazy. But, but, but that was in the context of love. And, and I know that the heart that was controlling the hand that was holding the rod loved me deeply. And so when we come to this passage, it is the heart of the chastener that we have to stare at and that we have to study. And the scriptures indeed keep jabbing their finger towards the heart of the chastener. This is where we have to gaze. If you are under God's chastening, then you have to stare at the heart to see the goodness of the one who holds this rod. And what do we see? We see this, first of all, this father sees clearly. Whenever a son deviates from God's path, whether through ignorance or willfulness, it requires correction. But God sees clearly the origin of that that, that deviation from his path. And where it is ignorance, God does not bring out the rod of rebuke. We saw this with David. David comes and says, I've got an idea. I'm going to build a house for God. And God corrects David. God rejects that. No, David, you're not. God explains his rejection of that. But there's no rod. That was innocent. In fact, in Kings, it tells us it was a good idea that was in David's heart. So God always sees clearly the origins of our deviating from his path. And where it is ignorance, then God deals with it proportionate to that. We could say that where it is willfulness, then, and and where we do not respond to God's initial correction, then God's correction is in proportion to the origins of our deviation. We'll find later David with his willful sin with Bathsheba and the rod of chastening there is an entirely different category to to God's correction when David has a good idea but he's not the right man to build this temple. And so when we think of the chastening of God and and if if as children of God, when we look to the heart of God, we know this, our Father sees clearly He knows my motivation in these things and his his chastening will be in accordance with what he sees. 
Now, as earthly fathers, we don't always get this right, do we? You might have had a dad, and you might remind times of, of discipline, and you might, my dad got it wrong. I mean, he thought it was willful and deliberate, it was a complete mistake, and it was complete ignorance on my part, and I got the rough end of the deal in that one. There might have been other times when you thought it was willful and it was deliberate, and I pulled the wool over his eyes, and he thought it was ignorant, and I got off scot-free. As earthly fathers, this can be very difficult. We, we discipline on the basis of the bad knowledge that we had, and then we get the good knowledge, and we have to go back into their room and say, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. Honestly, I am sorry. I, I, I didn't see clearly what had happened. Or we can be unsure of what to do, or we can be influenced by the past behavior of a child, and we don't always see clearly the origins and how to discipline suitably, but God never suffers from such blindness. So this morning, as God's children, we have this confidence. We have this confidence. Our Father sees clearly. He never makes mistakes. He knows exactly how to chasten because he knows exactly why we did that thing that we have done. Not only does the Father see clearly, but the Father is holy. God's holiness knows no sympathy with sin. He sees the wrongness of sin. He sees the harm that sin will inflict in the life of the one who commits it. He sees the harm that the example of that would set if it was not chastened and rebuke. Said of a man from Scotland that he went overseas, was going over to live, sold his farm, presumably was moving over to live and he thought, I'll take a thistle seed with him. I think that's the emblem of Scotland, is it? He wanted a thistle in his farm, wherever he was going to live. And so he planted the seed and uh, perhaps hadn't fully contemplated, but before too long, the thistle had spread and spread and spread and got so out of hand that whether people wanted it or not, there it was. And the iniquity of one, especially a king, on one day can become the iniquity of the multitude on the next day. And God sees this clearly. God is holy and God sees the harm of sin and the wrongness of sin. And therefore, he responds to chasten. If we saw a young child praying, playing with a sharpened knife, we are clear-sighted the harm that that can inflict on the child or on others. It strikes even the very thought of it, a terror into our hearts. And the thought of other children seeing that and mimicking that just sends us into a panic. And so we, we find this, this instinct within our hearts, even as humans, that has to be corrected, that has to be restrained. And how much more God, when he sees us toying with the idea of sin or the, the actual beginnings or goings ahead with it. And so this morning, again, if, if you are under the chastening rod of God or you're thinking, stare at the chastener's heart. He sees clearly. He knows everything. He knows the why and he will be proportionate in his correction. And he is holy. He has no sympathy for sin. He sees the harm that sin would inflict on you, the harm your example would inflict on others. And so this is behind the chastening of God. For God to be passive in the face of his child's Sin would be indeed unholy and unloving. 
This father sees clearly, this father is holy, and this father loves deeply. God's love blazes for the welfare of his sons. He yearns for the welfare of their hearts. This is not a break in the blessings that God will bestow in this covenant. This is a continuation. He loves his covenant people. He loves his child. His heart yearns for the good of the child. So when the Bible speaks of chastening, often it is in this context of love. Proverbs 3.12, whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Hebrews 12, verse 6, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Hebrews 12, 10, for they are earthly parents, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit. And so we see in this heart of the chastener, there is a depth of love that we sang about at the beginning that is too deep for us to fathom, too wide for us to imagine. We saw in 1 Samuel when the high priest failed to restrain his children and they come under then the judgment of God and we say that wasn't a loving thing for the dad to do. That wasn't loving at all. God's love is pure. He yearns for the good of his children and so he chastens them. Back whenever my dad was chastening me that day that I'll uh, never forget, I had no idea what was going on in his heart on that day. But I do have a much better idea now. How many dads have been in tears with their children as they have chastened them? How many dads have to leave the room to weep after they have chastened their children? And that's what was in my dad's heart that day. And if that was in his heart and can in any measure be in our hearts, then how much of of this must be in God's heart? Does God enjoy chastening? Does he take some kind of pledge? No, God loves his children and that is why he chastens them. If we saw a child with petrol and matches, we saw them playing with a petrol and matches. It is love that would make us intervene. To walk away and stand idle would be a crime. It is our delight in the child that triggers a yearning for their good. There's a whole mixture of things. There, if there was a willfulness to it, then our correction would be different. But whatever the origins of it, there is a suitable correction and a chastening because we yearn for their good. We see the harm that this would do. So when we see the chastening, whatever we might think of the chastening, the most important word in this verse is the word of the chastener, I will chasten him. A God who sees clearly, a God who is holy, and a God who loves deeply. And when you put these things together and God sees a child deviating, his child deviating, then then God yearns and God responds for their good and their profit with his chastening suitable to what has been done. Is God applying the rod of chastening 
to you at present, child of God, the longer you stare into his heart, the more thankful you will become and the more clearly you will understand why he does this. Proverbs 3.11, we read, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. For in despising the chastening of the Lord, you are only punishing yourself. So we find here the chastening and the chastener and finally the chastened. God promises, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him. Now this promise of God is not just a good intention with God that fizzles out. No, God doesn't get too busy to, he is committed in this covenant to this chastening. It's included in the covenant with David. It will be fulfilled As we saw last week, if they see the sun rising in the morning, God will chasten the deviations of his children. for, For God to violate this covenant, God would need to die. And God is immortal and he'll never die. So if the sun is rising and, and the sun is setting, then God is a God committed to the chastening of his children. And as we go on through the book of 2 Samuel, we'll find David chastened severely after his sin with Bathsheba. In Psalms, he writes about this, the severity of the chastening, the misery that his heart was in, the removal of the joy of the Lord. David was chastened. In 2 Samuel 12, he was confronted by Nathan with this simple story that stirred David's anger towards an unnamed man who had sinned. And Nathan brings this powerful punchline, thou art the man. You have sinned against God. You did it willfully. You did it in the light of, you knew what you were doing. David brings, Nathan brings this message, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? Thou hast killed Uriah has taken his wife, has slain him. Now therefore, listen to this, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. There is a grievousness to this chastening rod that God is using on David here. And the grievousness of the chastening is to convey to David's heart the grievousness of his sin, which he has tried to hide. And as the displeasure and the disapproval of God enters into David's heart, his heart is broken. You can't argue that the chastening rod did no good. You could argue that the not chastening would have done an awful lot of harm to David. Here's a God who saw clearly what David was doing. Here's a God who was holy, had no sympathy with the sin. And here is a God who loves David deeply and is chastening with the rod here that it might convey to David's heart the grievousness. And it brings David to a place of humility and a place of repentance where he sees how wrong what he had done was. And he 
pleads for mercy and that rod that chastened is a heart that loves David and is quick to forgive and to restore the very joy that had been lost. It's a wonderful thing for a child after the chastening to feel the embrace, after the chastening has done its profitable work, the, the, the swift and the prompt embrace. And this is what David enjoys here. David could bless the father's hand for the rod that had been applied. Go on through First Kings and you'll see Solomon's iniquity. Married many wives, heart carried away to idolatry. And we're left reading those pages. Will God chasten? As God remembered his covenant, God never forgets his covenant. And how Solomon's heart must have ached when he learns that the kingdom will divide after him as a result of his sin. His son will reign over but a part of the kingdom. God chastens Solomon. Brings a grievous chastening, convey to his heart the grievousness of the sin that Solomon has committed. Go through to the prophets and you'll see that kingdom that was ruled over by Solomon's son will eventually be carried off into exile. They'll be taken away from their precious land. And the prophet Habakkuk will shake his head and will wonder how can God use a, naked, a nation more wicked than us as a rod with which to chasten us. Through tear-stained eyes, he will see the face of God and acknowledge, God, this too is your love. This too is your blessing. Our sin has been grievous. And our failure to respond to your gentle chastening has been grievous sin. And you have had to, you have had to chasten us like this to convey to our hearts the grievousness of what we have done. So we find here the chastened are all the way through the pages of the Old Testament where there was iniquity, there was chastening. Chastening proportionate to the origins of the deviation that they have done. Where it was in ignorance, there was gentle correction. But where there was willfulness and deliverance and persistence, then the rod of chastening was brought out for their good. When we get then to the pages of the New Testament, we find something truly amazing. And it's in which all of this hinges and our understanding of this hinges. The descendant that was spoken of finally comes, the eternal Son of God, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He walked on the paths of this earth and he never needed the rod of chastening. He never, ever needed the rod of chastening. Not once did the father even have to put his hand on the rod of chastening. Because the son was perfect. Indeed, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In him there is no fault. In him there is no sin. He was tempted, but he never deviated, never put a foot out of line in pleasing and honoring and obeying the father. And yet there on the cross, the perfect son who never needed the rod of chastening, it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He is not being corrected. 
He is not being corrected for his wrongs. He is not being dying and suffering to be purified from his wrongs. There on that cross, he is taking our sin and our judgment and our guilt and our hell that we deserve for our sins. This God who hangs incarnate on the tree is the one child of God who did all of that that you might be adopted into his family and might know him as a father who loves you enough to chasten you betimes whenever you need it. And this is why when we get to the pages of the New Testament, these promises keep coming. This is part of the nature of God. He sees, he is holy, he loves And it tells us that he chastens every son that he loves. Every son, present tense, God corrects, God trains, God chastens his people. And if we could go from the pages of scripture through the 2nd century, the 10th century, right through to us sitting now here in Portadown, all the way along, we have a God who chastens his covenant people because he loves them and it is for their good that they might indeed be partakers of his holiness. Are you this morning being chastened by God? Do not despise it. Do not despise it. He sees why you've done what you've done. He knows the harm it will do you. If you do not turn from it. And he loves you deeply to chasten you for your good. Tozer uses an illustration in conclusion of how the likes of a a nail, for example, might not be too amused at what the hammer does to it. But he says, let the nail remember this. The hammer is held by the workman. The carpenter decides. And when the nail has surrendered to the will of the workman and gotten a little glimpse of his plans for its future, it will yield to the hammer without complaint. The file is more painful still, scraping and eating away the edges till it has shaped the metal to his will. Yet the file serves its master. It is the master and not the file that decides how much to be eaten away, what shape the metal will take, how long the painful filing will continue. Let the metal accept the will of the master and it will not try to dictate when or how it should be filed. As for the furnace, it is worst of all. It leaps at every combustible thing that enters. When everything is melted that will melt and all is burned that will burn, then and not till then, the furnace calms down and rests. If God is chastening, you've got to see the hand of the workman, the hand of the carpenter, and he is working all of this for your good. If God is chastening you this morning, He always explains in these passages why. He loves us and it is not to be despised. Once again, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, visit our website, portadownimc.org or find us on Facebook at Portadown IMC. God bless.